The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Welcome to our commencement seminars for 2006. This is always a, a real highlight in, um, in our commencement experience. Um, I have a couple of interesting documents in front of me. Um, one is a, a certificate from uh, July of 1811 in which William Edgar Esquire has the full rights to a pew in the First Presbyterian Church of New York on Wall Street. Now, as you may know, rights to a pew meant this is how you're going to give your money to the church. And indeed, the Presbyterian Church uh, didn't lose any time because uh, later that fall, uh, to, be, to name the date October 29th, 1810, um, my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather got a letter from the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church of America, who, which at their session of May last, urged by the state of our churches, the loud and affecting calls of destitute frontier sentiment, settlements, the demands of near 400 vacant congregations, and the laudable exertions of various Christian denominations did resolve that they would immediately attempt to establish a seminary for securing to candidates for the ministry more extensive and efficient theological instruction than they have heretofore enjoyed. Now, um, then there's a standard appeal, doesn't look much different from the appeals we have today. The English is a little more elegant. But, um, and then um, there's a, a, a detailed document of what this seminary is going to look like. And um, because of time, I won't go through all the points, uh, but I did want to outline um, their mission statement number seven, that as filling the church with a learned and able ministry without a corresponding portion of real piety would be a curse to the world and an offense to God and his people. So the General Assembly think it their duty to state that in the establishing of a seminary for training up ministers, it is their earnest desire to guard as far as possible against so great an evil. And they pledge themselves to the churches to minister to these budding ministers. And um, my grandfather, my great-great-grandfather uh, enclosed a check for $1,000, which I think in those days was, was real money. Um, now, uh, we... Yeah, our family <laughs> has no idea where all this wonderful money went anyway. Um, too many people went into the ministry, I think. Uh, the past is only the present become invisible and mute. And because it is invisible and mute, its memoried glances and its murmurs are infinitely precious. We are tomorrow's past, said Mary Webb. This year, our commencement seminars focus on history, Westminster's history. How appropriate to have these two historians address us, each on a different topic, 
and each giving us memoried glances and articulate murmurs about our own present. First, it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Peter A. Lilbach, Senior Pastor of Proclamation Presbyterian Church, President and Professor of Historical Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. Peter is a graduate of Cedarville College. He earned the THM from Dallas Theological Seminary and the PhD at Westminster. When the Lord gave out the gifts, he hovered over Peter a long time. Author of a major study on the covenant, of a large book on George Washington, numerous other writings, a careful teacher in history, in ethics, in doctrine, a superb preacher. He would deny this, but he's also an excellent administrator. I think most of all, he would want to be called a pastor. Indeed, his style of leadership is more pastoral than political. His passions include his family, the Providence Forum, classical guitar, American history, and most important of all for me, the Huguenot Fellowship. Um, Peter is um, a great friend, and um, just something brief about him because you want to hear from him, not from me. Um, Peter's a, a servant. We took a trip of um, people to Europe a couple of years ago over to Aix-en-Provence to inaugurate the James Boyce Chair of Practical Theology. And um, just as we were arriving, Peter turned to me and said, um, I, my French isn't great, I can't do a whole lot, you know this place better than I do, give me the car keys, I'll be the chauffeur. And for the next week, he just drove people back and forth to the airport, picked up people at the hotels, um, just something that is low profile, but something you don't get to know about a person until you, you travel with, with them. So Peter is a marvelous servant and a great friend. He's going to speak to us this morning on the, this subject, an introduction to the founding faculty of Westminster. He's going to go till 10, then we'll have a break, and then I will summon you back at 10.15. So um, Peter, thank you very much, and if you have time or desire time for questions, that would be fine. But otherwise, you have till 10 o'clock, and welcome. It's really terrible when the introduction is going to be better than the lecture, you know? I just, I'm really, that's such a high standard, that eloquence and that wonderful warmth that Bill gives. Uh, Sam Logan and I, your uh, chancellor and president at Westminster, are very pleased that we're able to unveil this weekend a project that we've been working on all year long. It's called The Whole Council of God. This is uh, an attempt to explain the wonderful heritage that everybody who walks into Westminster participates in. And Sam and I dreamt together about how could we say that uh, when we look at the world that we are so grateful for the uniqueness of what God has done here and this is how it came out. So we praise God for the reality of this. And so Sam, it's an honor to team up with you in these lectures because this is really what we wanted to do. So praise God for that. What I'd like to talk about today is the cultural setting of Westminster Seminary. It's an introduction to the founding faculty of our school. Now I take the language, a cultural setting, and I'm actually borrowing from the very first doctoral seminar I had when I came to Westminster. I had the joy of sitting with uh, Dr. Stanford Reed, and he said, we're going to have a class 
called The Cultural Setting of the Reformation. And I was really excited because I couldn't wait to get to all of Calvin's theology, and I wanted to get to Zwingli, and I wanted to learn about all the Puritans. We didn't talk about any of that stuff. And it ticked me off until I was in the third lecture. And suddenly I realized you could not possibly understand the theology of these incredible world-changing men until you understood the milieu in which they operated. And he forced me to become a fledgling historian, and I've never been the same. That class revolutionized everything I did. My doctoral dissertation was really, the first half was just trying to put Calvin in his point in time. And once you do that, then what he said about the covenant begins to make a whole lot of sense. Without that, it's just ideas floating in the air. And so what I'd like to do today is do to Westminster what Westminster did to me. Westminster forced me to step back and say, well, who are these great reformational people? We're going to put them in historical context. I'd like you to think about the wonderful portraits that you'll find in this book that are really the paintings that you'll find in Machen and different places around the campus, and put these men in their historical context. We're going to introduce, if you will, the founding faculty of Westminster, but we will do it by putting Westminster's founding faculty in their cultural setting. First of all, we remember that the Reformation had already long happened. That was the foundational history that brought together everything about Westminster. The Reformation slogans, you know them well, sola scriptura. The Bible is really important, foundational. Sola Christo, Christ is the only redeemer. Gratia alone, grace alone, sola gratia, it is God's sovereign gift that we have life. Sola fide, faith is the unique instrumentality of justification. The priesthood of the believer, the amazing, daring thought that we can barge into the throne room of the universe by simply bowing in faith and repentance. The idea that we are all about an end. We've known about the purpose-driven life long before Rick Warren figured it out. We knew that the chief end of man is to glorify God. It's always been that way in the Reformed tradition. In fact, Calvin's a little catechism started off, what is the chief end of man? Well, it's really to know God, because only when you know God do you know who you're glorifying. It's knowing God, and it's bringing him his glory. Those principles express themselves in what has been called the magisterial reformation. The reformation that understood that it was working with the government, not without it or in conflict with it, but cooperatively to bring about the reformation. There are three streams. There's the Lutheran, there's the Reformed, and what has been called the Elizabethan. The Lutheran is self-evident. The Reformed expresses itself in Reformed, Presbyterian, and Congregational. The Elizabethan participates in the story of the Congregational, but it adds the Baptist and the Methodist traditions. And so as we look at our great backdrop, we are a Reformational school that comes from the Reformed branch of the Magisterial Reformation, and there's a principle that governs this thing called the Reformed tradition. Sometimes we use the word sovereignty to describe it. The idea that there is a kingship, a kingdomness about the movement that we're part of. It expresses itself in the delight in the word providence, where the 
Early Reformed people went, they liked to name cities or institutions or churches providence because they believed that God was governing all things, even the sparrow and the hare and the days of the life and the heart of the king. They all are in the hand of the Lord. They understood that salvation is under God's sovereignty, and they came up probably at some almost Westminster-like student studying for a final exam. The great canons of Dort needed to be remembered, and they came up with the tulip, right? A great acrostic to get the five points right on that final exam. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, the perseverance of the saints, all describing God's sovereign grace. And then the moral law. God is a king, has a people that must follow his standards that reflect his nature. The moral law of God is a reflection of his sovereignty, his ruling over us in our daily lives, ruling over the state, ruling over the church. This is how he rules through his express nature and will. These ideas are part of our heritage. We are reformational. We are reformed. We believe in these sovereign principles. And that reformed tradition, of course, came to America. The reformed tradition from its Dutch and German view settled here. The Presbyterians from Scotland came here. The Congregationalists from England came and settled in New England. And it's interesting, this year, 2006, celebrates literally the 300th anniversary of the first meeting of a presbytery in North America. Three centuries have passed since the English tradition of the Reformed people have met. That's part of our backdrop, too. Reformational, magisterial reformational, reformed in sovereignty, various reformed traditions, but the Presbyterian being the one that came and marked us. Now, you know those distinctives, but they're worth summarizing in a simple way. The Westminster Standards, the Confession and the larger and shorter Catechism, an ecclesiology that sees the idea of ascending courts. There are, is a local a session and a presbytery and a general assembly. That worship should be regulated by God's word in some definitive and conscious way. These were marks of this Presbyterian tradition. And one of the things that happened as the Presbyterians came to America is that they realized that they were not a state church of any government anymore. In England, for 20-some years, when Charles the head, or excuse me, Charles the king without a head, was no longer in power, the Puritans took over, but only for a short time. The state church disappeared, and the Presbyterians came to America as a minority, and they discovered that they were able to grow, that they were able to be successful. And as this Presbyterian tradition began to unfold, they said, you know, you don't need to be supported by the state to be effective as a church. And when the Great American Revolution occurred, they were the stalwarts fighting for the idea that we don't need to be protected by the state. We don't need to have an establishment. We just need religious liberty. And the confession of American Presbyterianism was actually altered by our founding fathers. It said that state and church should be separate. They'd been influenced by a man named George Whitfield, the first great evangelist. And there were divisions. Do we like his evangelism? Do, are we opposed to it? 
And there was the old school and the new school. There were ideas like common sense philosophy, rationalism, the enlightenment, deism. And these ideas swirled around. And finally, at a small New Jersey college in Princeton, there was a man by the name of John Witherspoon who began to help lead a Presbyterian school into the future. And his basic view was a high view of the confession and a high view of human reason, recognizing that reason always needs to be guided by scripture. And that kind of began the Presbyterian tradition in America. A high confessionalism, a desire to be faithful citizens, but not under the power of the church, I mean the state protecting the church in the particular way, but in a very generic way. And the Presbyterian tradition began to grow. And then the great civil war came along. And at this point, America was divided north and south. And the Princeton tradition reflected that of Charles Hodge, the anti-slavery view, a strong view of a social conscience in government, not saying we don't need to talk about slavery. That's a matter that each individual conscience can think about. He said, no, we must be salt and light and impact our culture. These kind of forces brought us then to the end of the 1800s. And it has been called by historians the Gilded Age of the Church. In Presbyterianism, sometimes we talk about the different uh, views of office. Are you a two-office, a three-office, a two-and-a-half-office church? Well, a new church office was invented in America for Presbyterians in the late 1800s. It was called the trustee. The trustee didn't exist really before that because the church never worried about having money. But in the late 1800s, Presbyterians had become very successful. They were business leaders and owners of corporations, and they had influence, and they had a rising star university system that went all across the early states of our country. And so in the Gilded Age, large cathedral-like churches began to be built in America. In the post-Civil War era, industrialization began to break out, and large successful firms were in the hands of Presbyterian people with great wealth. And this influence began to shape our church, the Presbyterian tradition. If you are an Episcopalian or a Presbyterian in America, you are one of the wealthy people, generally speaking. That was the idea, and it gave us the word that we have to this day, the mainline churches. Because as you go to the Philadelphia mainline, an area named by the railroad that comes up in the Gilded Age, in the industrialized age, these were the churches that dotted the countryside, Presbyterian and Episcopalian. They were the great leaders of culture. And of course, when you have great wealth, the Presbyterians no longer wanted to plow the fields too much. They wanted some help. And so they opened the doors to the country to immigration. But those brought in non-Presbyterian people. It brought in Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and other viewpoints. And into that turmoil of a wealthy, immigrant, traditional, and Presbyterian world, other ideas began to come. And it's into this backdrop now that we begin to see where Westminster will find its expression. We have the backdrop of a distinctive Presbyterianism coming from the Reformation that will now begin to meet what we will call modernism. The ideas of evolution begin to come. The elite school of Princeton 
and other Presbyterian colleges, because they are pursuing education at the highest level, have to wrestle with Darwin's claim. What do we do with the fact that maybe all things evolved and they were not created? Ideas from the Enlightenment in Europe began to come in. We call them higher criticism. What if the Bible is not directly a gift from God? What if the Bible was, in fact, something that was made of many ancient mythological expressions of an ancient pluralism, that an ancient redactor that, for history's sake, we've called Moses put together? What if Jesus really didn't rise from the dead? What if that's just a great story? What if the Bible is just like any other ancient writing? and that it just needs to be critiqued for how we got it and to learn how it reveals an ancient past that no longer speaks to us today. So evolution, higher criticism, immigration of different religious ideas, modernism is born, and out of that the proposal is religious pluralism in an ultimate sense. Any idea has just as much equivalence as another that we should not impose our theology on anyone, for after all, as the German liberal said, the kingdom of God is here and now, and it is in the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God. Let us simply come together in spite of theology. Let's set aside doctrine, and in a great ecumenical movement, let us just simply bring in the kingdom of God, which will look an awful lot like Germany that will have a wonderful high culture and education. And that's what the world will be. And so the great idealism of this early part of the world began to impact us, and it had its expression in America. It was a time of post-millennial optimism. And the church, whether liberal or conservative, said we will eradicate crime in our world. The Christian Century magazine was born, and one of its articles said, in another century, crime in America will have vanished. Boy, that was a sermon that was very unprophetic, would you not say? Prohibition was born out of that. We are getting better and better every day and every way, and we, by our societal, sociological influences, can make the kingdom of God become a reality now. Conservative and liberal and lockstep in America said, we will change the world. And of course, all those ideas were floating through that college and seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. And there happened to have been a young scholar by the name of J. Gresham Machen, who had gone to study in Europe because he was so brilliant. And he understood the higher criticism. And he understood the optimism of the new view that we can bring in the kingdom of God and the brotherhood of man. And he began to drink it in deeply. But later he tells us he could never shake his mother's prayers that had prayed that he would never abandon the truth of the gospel and the authority of God's word. And when Machen came back to America, and came to his school, having studied and wrestled, he committed himself to the historic witness of the gospel. 
the influence of the Reformation would live within him. He would not be a magisterial reformer. He would be an American Presbyterian and want a strong distinction between church and state. He would be one that would recognize the sovereignty of God in providence and salvation and the moral law. He would appreciate the breadth of the Reformed commitment. He wanted to celebrate the American Presbyterian experience because he thought it was good. He loved the Westminster Standards. He wanted a Presbyterian government. He wanted to worship biblically. He was very, very concerned about the influence of the Enlightenment and higher criticism. And how does science impact with the scriptures? These were issues that were on his mind. Well, out of his great wrestling with these things, he one day made an interesting and penetrating insight. He said, liberalism is all around us. Modernism is here. And it is clothed in the garments of Christianity. But it's not Christianity. And he said, liberalism and Christianity are two different religions. And that fundamental antithesis between what he said is true Christianity and what is false, even though cloaked and clothed with the outward form of Christianity, changed the world. That insight of saying there is a true religion and it's counterfeit, determined almost everything that happens in Christianity to this day in America and around the world. He was in a unique place to do it. No one could call him an obscurantist. No one could say, you don't know what you're talking about. He had accomplished the highest levels of scholarship in one of America's premier organizations, and he had the courage of his convictions and he began to speak boldly. In Chester, Pennsylvania, not far from here, he determined to speak boldly at a Presbyterian men's organization and say Christianity and liberalism are two different religions. And Presbyterian laymen, you must begin to distinguish the two. Now, as he began to work that out, that became known over time in a movement it was given a name by others who began to follow him as he made front page news across the country. Because of his bold witness, people were paying attention to his work. And over a period of time, a movement was born called fundamentalism. Now, fundamentalism was named for a series of tracts that were developed at this time. They were written by an ecumenical group of conservative Christians who are addressing some of the things that they heard from liberalism from different vantage points. I like to remember them as the five V's. Okay, you have the five points of Calvinism, and you have sometimes the five or six slogans of the Reformation. You have verbal plenary inspiration, the Bible, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the vicarious substitutionary atonement, the victory over the grave of the bodily resurrection, and the visible personal second advent of Jesus Christ. These five issues were put into a series of pamphlets called the Fundamentals and sent all across America. They were funded by conservative laymen, and they said, we want you to know that these are still true. 
And so the fundamentalist movement was born, sometimes called the fighting fundamentalist movement. Now what's intriguing about Dr. Machen is that he was a fighter, to be sure. And he had sympathies with the issues of the fundamentalist controversy. But he wasn't a fundamentalist. He said, no, I am a confessionalist. My faith cannot be reduced to just five simple points that are being fought. The Westminster Standards express historic, reformed, full-orbed, biblical Christianity. And so as Machen began to stand in the early 1920s with this controversy, by the end of that decade, Princeton Seminary had been reorganized in such a way that the historic conservative orthodoxy could no longer be guaranteed. And Machen, as a prophet, unlike the Christian century that said a century from now crime will be gone, Machen said if we do not defend the Bible, a century from now Christianity will be gone. Liberalism will destroy Christianity from within. And we need to have a school that has the courage to maintain its historic witness. He wrote several important books to maintain his view, the origins of Paul's religion. No, not from the mystery religions of the ancient uh, Gnostic tradition or Platonic tradition or pagan tradition. No, it's from God. A revelation from heaven. The virgin birth, yes, the virgin birth occurred. But not just as a simple reaction to liberalism. One of the massive tomes of theology was written from his pen to defend this controverted doctrine, and it still stands as the definitive treatment on this topic to this day. The Christian view of man. Man is not good, getting better every day in every way. Man is fallen and broken and sinful. And until we take seriously man's inability to know or live or love pleasingly to God, we will have no real truth. And of course, Christianity and liberalism, the two vying religions of his day. Out of that, this school was born, Westminster Seminary. Westminster Seminary then, and our founding faculty in historical context. A reformational seminary. A seminary that recognizes we are an American Presbyterian school. We believe that the church and state cooperate, but they're different. We're not vying for a theonomic takeover of the government. We believe in civil liberties and libertarian principles in various ways, recognizing the great reformed principles of providence and salvation and moral law, recognizing the reformed tradition is vast, it's Presbyterian, but it's also congregational. It is also reformed, and each of these streams began to come together. There are fundamentals we must fight for. But we're not fundamentalists. We're confessionalists. As we begin to look at the founding faculty that joined J. Gresham Matron at Westminster, we discover that one of the very senior colleagues, and if I'm not mistaken, the first name to sign the faculty book, the senior ranking scholar, was a man named Robert Dick Wilson. His picture still hangs in Machen Hall. We now call it the Jonathan Chow Room. If you go into that conference room, you'll see it there. And when you look at the little nameplate, it will say, we have not shirked the difficult questions. 
The tradition of Robert Dick Wilson was if we, like Machen, like Princeton, like historic Reformed theology, are committed to scholarship, we are not afraid to take the Christian faith into the most difficult issues. We're not afraid to confront them because God's word is true and God has given us the ability to love him with all our minds at the same time. Scholarship along with a heart that is devoted to Christ in his word. Robert Dick Wilson established that. We've already spoken about Machen. Another American Presbyterian in this tradition was Paul Woolley, a Princeton graduate who came to teach church history. My favorite Woolley line is, and it helps me whenever I teach church history, he says, remember, St. Augustine is in Florida. St. Augustine is in heaven. That's one of those Woolleyisms that will carry on for eternity, I think. But that character of being able to look at all the traditions with scholarship and benefit and engage them was part of that brilliant tradition that came to us from Machen and Princeton that was brought over into our school. E.J. Young, an Old Testament scholarship whose writings were read by the liberals in the universities because his scholarship was impeccable. We think of others that came from not the American Presbyterian tradition, but the Dutch tradition, a man by the name of Van Til and another man by the name of Kuiper. They came and said, oh yes, we are Dutchmen. But Machen said, the Reformed faith has always been ecumenical. It's been worldwide in its scope. We want a school that's not just a clone of Princeton. We want to bring the best of the Reformed tradition together. And to the great credit of uh, J. Gresham Machen, he said, this Kuyperian apologetics, I'm not so familiar with that. I'm used to the old classical, rationalistic, evidential model that's been part of the tradition of our school for our decades. But I'm open to hear the defense of these ideas. And he welcomed Cornelius Van Til into the school. And out of that came a worldwide movement of presuppositional apologetics that lives to this day. Westminster is the only school that offers a PhD in apologetics in the entire world. Think about that. That's a direct result of Dr. Machen saying to young Dr. Van Til, work it out, let's see what it looks like. We'll give it a try. Creativity, a new idea, melding ideas within this historic reformed witness R.B. Kuyper, a man who could go and lead Calvin College and come back and be part of our faculty and teach pastoral skills, the Dutch tradition. But that wasn't all. There's this young Scotsman by the name of John Murray, Scotland. Come and be part of us. <clears throat> John Murray's work. And, of course, the second generation comes on the scene, and a young man named Ed Clowney comes along, and he is an American Presbyterian, drinks deeply, from a homiletic tradition from the Netherlands that had not been widely known in America called the historical redemptive method of preaching. He had been influenced along with John Murray by a man named Gerhardus Voss who said if you understand the Bible you'll find Christ on every page and you'll see his redemptive work unfolding in an organic way as in a surprising story 
that no one could have ever predicted. But when you look back, you can see the entire plant and the little kernel that had been planted in Eden. As we look at these ideas and as we come to a conclusion, and I will be glad to take a few moments for questions when I conclude, the legacy of Westminster and its historical milieu lives on. Our distinctives from our past determine who we are today. Where a person begins will determine where he ends. That's a very Vantillian thought. Our beginning points, our ideas determine our destiny. From Princeton, we receive the legacy of erudition, of painstaking scholarship, of a commitment to pursue excellence in what we know and what we teach and what we speak and what we write and how we influence our world. From Machen, we have that fight for orthodoxy. Orthodoxy matters. Orthodoxy is why Westminster came into being. And we no longer care for what is orthodox theology. We have sold our birthright. That is who we are, and it's who we must be. And that is the legacy of Machen. Machen Hall stands tall. I'm so glad it's made out of stone to last for the ages, to remind us of the orthodoxy that must always be at the very core of Westminster Seminary. Ecumenicity, the faculty that comes from many traditions and many nations with differing but united ecclesiologies, common reformed interests, but not expressed exactly the same way. Confessionalism, why it's in our very name. Our first name is a confession, Westminster Theological Seminary. Our board meeting was just held in the last couple days, and we're working hard to defend our title against anyone who would encroach upon it because Westminster has come to mean orthodoxy and the highest scholarship so that it's a delight to go around the world and say Westminster and have someone say, do you mean the confession or the seminary? And it's known everywhere. That's the legacy of the 77 uh, years that are part of our tradition. Now, as we look at this tradition, what about the Gilded Age? How did the Gilded Age leave its impact on Westminster? Well, in a very negative way. The great treasures had been laid up in abundance for Princeton Theological Seminary. And when it was reorganized, all of those treasures went with the liberals and did not come with the conservatives. And Dr. Machen came and started the seminary, and his commitment was, we're never going to charge a student a penny, and we're going to trust God to make it all work. Well, I'm sorry, you're paying tuition now, so that vision didn't happen to carry on. What happened is that even though Dr. Machen left us a legacy and others stood strongly with it, that fortune ran out because the world discovered Westminster and the students started coming and we had to pay faculty. And so we had to start charging tuition and we had to start building buildings. And you know what? We did not have an endowment. And Many, many times through the years, and Sam Logan could tell this, I know this for a fact and others, we have lived by a string of faith in God's providence, a shoestring away from closing the door until God surprises us. 
Now, there is such a thing as called tempting God. So I think we need to build our endowment a little bit more fully than we have. But you know, it's probably a good thing that we can never be fat and happy because it makes us theologically daring to test God in another way. We don't need him. We are the master of our fate and the captain of our soul. But if you really want to give us $100 million, we will talk carefully and pray over it with you. The Gilded Age left its mark that we basically abandoned the treasures of the past, trusting in God's providence in the presence and the future. And I think as the board works, there's a middle way between those two extremes that we must find the course for the future. Well, what about evolution? Well, Westminster has determined that this is a very fascinating question that many scholars are going to debate on, but Dr. Van Til helped us so very powerfully when he said, you cannot look at the world properly on anything unless you understand the creator-creature distinction. God is, and everything else is his handiwork. And until you have that, you will never interpret any fact properly. The legacy of Westminster is not to defend a particular theory of origins, but to give us a cosmology that is grounded in a presuppositional perspective that says God is and he is the creator and everything else is creature. And with that in place, take on science, take on any ideology, because you're going to begin to get the facts right. And by application, we understand that that's precisely the conflict of our era. Instead of that ultimate dualism, there is a God creator, and everything else is creature. We have a monism, where everything is one. We are God, and God is us. Pantheism. That's at the core of paganism. It's the core of atheism. There is some ultimate, it's all one, and it's us, or it's the goddess, or whatever you want to say. The creator-creature distinction is at the very core of Westminster's view of reality. And fascinatingly, that prohibition movement, what about it? Isn't it interesting that Machen said, it's wrong, it won't work. Do you know why he knew that? Because he understood human depravity. He said, you cannot force people to be good by laws. Now, that doesn't mean we should not have just laws. But we must understand if we are going to impact society, we need to be able to couple Christian obedience with Christian liberty. And until we balance those two, we will always become moralists in our expressions of government, our expressions of church life. Today, as I conclude, those are how those cultural ideas impacted our seminary, helped to cause them, how they've distinguished us. Let me say as I look to the future then in conclusion, scholarship is who we are. It is a great honor to be able to say that we still offer a PhD program that is of the very highest order. Our students who go through our MDiv program and go on to highest levels of scholarship can compete. Orthodoxy, we still are committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. As your new president, I've sat down with every faculty member and I've said, are you committed to the Westminster Confession and your vow? 
and everyone has said, I am absolutely ex animo, from my heart, committed to the Westminster Confession of Faith. We're not fundamentalists. We are reformed. We love our confessional heritage. Ecumenicity today, the legacy of Westminster being all over the world is a reality. 5,100 living alumni in 66 countries around the world. What a thrilling expression. When you have a chance to talk to Dr. Logan, ask him about the World Reform Fellowship that had its General Assembly in Johannesburg. And he will tell you it was really a Westminster alumni meeting from all around the world. Our fellow graduates are leading the church in the Reformed tradition. And that's what this commencement is all about. Ecumenicity is the very core of who we are. We are not a denominational seminary. We live with something of that oxymoron, an independent Presbyterian seminary, because we are committed to various Reformed ecclesiologies that are within this Reformed heritage summarized, we believe, best by the Westminster Confession. As we look at our confessionalism and our heritage, we must do something about our founding fathers' view of reacting to the Gilded Age. Would you prayerfully consider being part of the work that we need to do here? I am struck now, having been a president for only one year, at how, how hard it is to raise the 50% of every student's tuition we have to raise so that they can study here. I've also come to realize how those little gifts add up to make a huge difference. We need your help, even if it's very, very small. Every little bit matters. Would you prayerfully invest again in the legacy? One of the most exciting things that this book has given to me is that as you open it again and again, you'll see the signatures of our founders from that book that they sign when they become members of our faculty. At the very end, when you have a chance to look at it, there's a place for you to sign your name on the tradition. Isn't it always scary to sign on the dotted line? Okay, there it is for you. Would you sign that and say, I want to make sure I know what's going on at Westminster. I want to be on the mailing list. I want to know what's going on at my school. I want to be asked for prayers. And if God has blessed me with gifts, big or small, I want to be asked if there's someone in my sphere of influence who cares about these distinctive values, sign me up because I sign my name on the line with Machen and Van Til and Murray and Young and Kuiper and Clowney and Robert Dick Wilson. We need your help. We're not going to bring in the Gilded Age, but we need to share in our resources to accomplish this ends. The creator-creature distinction the great worldview is something that we're really excited about. As you look at the truth about DaVinci.com, which now has had over 100,000 visitors in only a month of being online, one of the most successful web pages in the history of any in America. That's, that's the truth. We've had uh, 18 people who've written to us and said they've put their faith in Christ as a result of that web page. It's an evangelistic tool. But what I want you to know is that at the core of it, it is a popular apologetic of Cornelius Van Til at work. It's saying, 
All facts must be interpreted in light of the Creator. He created all of the things that make the Internet possible. He revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is relevant to a modern world. And the problem with Dan Brown's thesis is he doesn't understand the Creator-Creature distinction. He says, everything is God, and we are God. And the goddess is within us. And as Christians, we are simply addressing the world with that orthodox tradition that has the love of Christ. And what about this thing called prohibition? Well, at Westminster, we still practice Christian liberties. We believe each conscience needs to say, how do I please God? We don't have anyone who's exactly the same. And that's why Westminster is such a breath of fresh air. Because wherever we go, grace follows this faith. We say, don't please some standard of men. Your conscience is free in Christ. But because God has given us his nature, his moral law, submit to him. Bow your knee before him and say he is king of kings and lord of lords. So as we put Westminster Seminary in its cultural setting and we get exposed to our founding faculty, I want you to know those men live on every day in the classrooms at this school. And we praise God for your friendship. Let's open it up for some questions. Yes, sir. Okay, the question was, where does the seminary stand with regard to Norman Shepard? And how does that impact our views of the creator-creature distinction and our view of confessionalism? I think if you were to ask any of our faculty members and you, and you said to them, which do you hold to, the theology of Norman Shepard or the theology of the Westminster Confession? They all would say, I hold to the theology of the Westminster Confession. Now, that's an important point because Norman Shepard is a distinctive theologian and historian in our uh, school, had unique perspectives that were his own. They don't reflect necessarily the view of the school, but on the other hand, Norman Shepard taught many things that are extremely confessional. Our theology is Westminster Confession theology. So I believe that the Reformed tradition, when it deals with the great issue that Norman Shepard raised, which is good works and its relationship to faith, I think we say with the confession that we are justified by faith alone. But the faith that justifies us is never alone, but is always accompanied by all saving graces. Now that confessional balance means we're not Lutherans. It means we're not evangelicals. It means we're reformed because we take a covenantal paradigm of salvation. It is the unique instrumentality of faith that justifies us. But that faith is not given in a vacuum. It is given in the entirety of God's covenantal grace, which is the work of the Holy Spirit in a new nature. So I think we must keep that balance. A unique instrument is justification by faith alone. But that faith is never alone, but it's always accompanied by saving graces. That is what we were officially committed to as a seminary. It's what I have taught, what I learned here. I'm, I find that in Calvin, and I think that is the theology of our school. I think it always has been. Okay. Yes, sir. This is Dr. Winpenny. By the way, thank you for your great book on bridges. If you want to re read a book that ought to be a bestseller, you need to get that book. <laughs> 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 An academic question. Okay. I know 
Okay, great question. Why do we find in fundamentalism such a strong strain of anti-intellectualism? Well, there's a couple things that come to mind. First of all, the pietist tradition was the foundation of which Schleiermacher came to the whole debate in response to Kant's philosophy. Schleiermacher, the father of modern liberalism, is the first post-Kantian theologian. And when Schleiermacher came to Kant, he came from a pietist tradition that says you can love Jesus profoundly with your heart, even though maybe Kant's right. You can't know the noumenal realm of God, that there's this upstory knowledge that you can never experience. And that model has been basically agreed upon by the fundamentalist and the liberal alike. They both believe the mind cannot take you toward God and you just love God inwardly. The difference is the fundamentalist says, well, you rely absolutely on the Bible to address that problem. And so you just study the Bible and then you know what you need to know and you don't look at anybody else. The liberal says, we agree with that dichotomy, but you can't have the Bible in it. And so I think what the reformed view has done, it says, we do believe that there is this creator-creature distinction, but we believe because we're made in God's image that the intellect is a tool under revelation and in grace that brings us knowledge of God, not directly, but derivatively. And so it's not the primacy of the heart in spite of the intellect, which is at the core, I think, of the fundamentalist movement. The historic reform faith has said there's the primacy of the intellect, and that is our danger. Because if we only have the intellect, we create what has been called cold and dead orthodoxy. We no longer care about people. And that's the danger. Paul says knowledge can puff up. But he also says, I would only speak with five words in a known tongue than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. The Reformed faith says we will have that knowledge under the Lord. And so I think the balance for both positions, the Reformed tradition and the anti-intellectual tradition of fundamentalism, is really coming back to the second and first great commandment to love God with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And when we put that in that context, then we have a response to liberalism and fundamentalism. Liberalism says you can't know, but you serve with this compassionate love and social change. We need to love our neighbor. Liberals are right. But with fundamentalists, we need to say we can't go the liberal route, but we can't become anti-intellectual. We need to love God with our minds. So I think the, the core is going right back to the foundational sumum bonum, the two great commandments, seeking the highest good of the kingdom with our heart, with our mind. Okay, so that's the beginning of an answer.